The reality is that for everybody in this room, we are talking about the ancient world. So I'm going to start by asking the following question. How do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? And I'll give by way of example. Over the shiurim I gave over the course of Shabbat, <clears throat> including the, the drashot, there were relatively infrequent but not rare comments by members of the tzibur with answers to questions I was posing, which were based on things that they might have heard, things they learned when they were younger, things they saw in certain midrashim. And they were a little surprised when I said, no, I'm talking about a text here at the Tanakh. What does it say in here? <clears throat> which, of course, brings us to the meta question, the bigger question. How do we know what we know? <clears throat> Based on what information do we go further in life? And everybody here is experienced. We're all experienced people. We've lived decades. <clears throat> in some cases, many decades. And so... We understand that when we make decisions, it's all based on information. In some cases, probability, and hopefully, really good probability. <clears throat> so how do we know what we know? And I'd like to suggest that we know what we know in three ways. If you have a different suggestion, please speak up. The only thing I'll warn you is, this year is being recorded, <laughs> so your voice will go out there on the Internet forever. All right? <clears throat> we know things because we experience them. We see them, we hear them, we touch them. And experience goes hand in hand with memory. We, as little kids, see something, get near it, suddenly it's uncomfortably hot, hopefully we didn't get too near it, and we imprint on our memory, stuff like that is dangerous, and we stay away from it, etc., we also know things because of trust. Trust. The first people that we trust inherently are our parents. As little kids, we trust whatever they tell us. If the parent says, bring the chair over, and your older brother does this, you learn that that's a chair. That's how we learn language. If your parent says, we're entrusting you to this building and the people in it, you learn to trust your teachers. Trust is transferable. Think about eating in a restaurant. How are you able to eat in a restaurant? Because there's a tuda on there on the wall that has the signature of a rabbi you've never met. How are you able to eat there? Because somebody that you trust knows somebody else and trusts him who employed that guy. That is why, if you think about it, betrayal of trust is one of the most horrendous experiences we have. And of course, in the worst realm, is a betrayal of parental trust, when parents do not act in a trustworthy manner. Imagine parents who are psychologists and want to use their children for an experiment. Unfortunately, things like this have happened. And so they make sure that in the house, they misidentify everything. Bring the table over, and they bring this over. Would you like something to drink and hand a book? Imagine what would happen to the child when they got out in the world, and nobody understood what they were talking about and thought they were crazy. And when years later, they finally figured out 
about language, how they would feel towards their parents. And what it does is it shatters all of their trust to anybody. Because trust is always an extension of trust of parents. That's where it starts. I trusted my parents. They brought me to a school. I trusted the teachers. The teachers gave me a textbook. I trusted the textbook. And so on. That's how that works. Now, we, we base our information on what we call trusted sources. And so we believe with 100% commitment that this book is true. This is a Tanakh I'm holding. Torah Nevim Tuvim. And therefore, we open it up, and it says that we all stood at the foot of Har Sinai. I accept that we all stood at the foot of Har Sinai. I wasn't there. I know the Midrash, but I wasn't there. You weren't there, as old as they may think we are. We weren't there. But we have a trusted tradition. And when we have a speaker come, or a book that we read, we trust it based on recommendations, reputation. So the reputation has got to be twofold. It's got to be a reputation of, of uh, competence and of credibility. And I'll explain what I mean by that. First of all, when we hear somebody speak, we want to have some guarantee that they are knowledgeable in the field they're speaking about. If you get the poet laureate of the United States to get up and talk about the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. If they want to talk about an ambic pentameter, then I'm interested. You tell, talk to me about what you're knowledgeable about. The second thing is, you have to make sure the source is credible. I will go to a used car, I don't go, but I would go to a used car lot, and the guy there may be very knowledgeable about cars, but I don't trust him. Because I know he's got an angle. His angle is, he wants my money and he wants to give me a lemon. So when I think about, tru- about sources that I trust, they've got to be competent and credible. And then there's a third way in which we know things. And by the way, this is a majority of how we know things. And that is by logical reasoning. Logical reasoning. For instance, you all came this morning. I don't know if you had a chance to hear me over the weekend or if it's because you heard about me from other people. But you made a, transi- a transposition, saying, well, I heard him yesterday, he was interesting, I'll come today and I'll get a bagel. <laughs> you made a logical deduction from the information you had to something else. And those of you who are familiar with the study of Gemara understand that a majority of the information we have is based on inferring from a text or inferring from a, from a story, a case law. That's how we know things. So I want to roll back to the first. The first area, which is we know things because we experience them, we touch them, we see them, and then we imprint on our memory. Over the course of the past couple of hundred years, the area of knowledge that we have access to about the ancient world has exploded. It has, there's no other word for it than exploded. What we knew about the ancient world 400 years ago was a drop in the bucket, and now we got buckets full. We understand ancient languages. We talked about that in the context of Egypt. We understand about ancient cultures. We have remains. And through the specific discipline of archaeology, and specifically for our purposes, biblical archaeology, 
we have unearthed a treasure trove of information about the ancient world. However, growing up, I was trained to think that the archaeologists are the bad guys. Because the archaeologists typically, although not, com not completely, but typically were secular and would take a secular approach to study of Tanakh. And when they would discover things, their conclusions would sound like, in the news bites, they would sound like they were confirming anti-Jewish beliefs or anti-traditional beliefs. What we've just found demonstrates that the Jews couldn't have been in Egypt. What we just found demonstrates that camels didn't, weren't domesticated until the 10th century B.C., etc. It sounded like that. But that doesn't invalidate the information. It invalidates the analysis. When you find something, it's there, and you can't deny its existence. How you interpret it, how you understand it, that's a whole different story. But a quick history lesson will actually show us that we're starting from the opposite direction. How did biblical archaeology start? Why did anybody take an interest in digging underground, first in Iraq and then in Palestine? By the way, Palestine's ours, from the river to the sea. It's ours. <laughs> we'll let other people live there, but it's ours. <clears throat> and by the way, the river I'm talking about is not the Jordan. It's the Prat. Um, the Euphrates. Um, why was there an interest in digging underground? It is an interest that was started not by us, but by the Anglican Church in England. The Anglican Church was very angry at the Lutherans in Germany. Now, you wonder, what do we care about a fight between a couple of Christian denominations? But the Lutherans in Germany and Catholics in Germany had gotten involved at the end of the 18th century in what is called biblical criticism, but really the, the school of higher criticism. What that means is they were challenging the truth of the biblical narrative and claiming there never was an Abraham, there never was a Yitzchak, there never was a Yaakov, maybe there was never a Moshe. They got to the point that never was a David. They stopped short, of course, that there was never a me, but you know, themselves, but negated it. And had all sorts of interesting theories, interesting, but based on very flimsy evidence, interesting ideas about the development of the text of Tanakh. The British were outraged. And so the British sent an expedition first to Iraq and then to Eretz Israel, to Palestine, to dig underground to prove the Germans wrong. So biblical archaeology actually started as a defense of Tanakh. Not by us. Let other people fight it out. A defense of Tanakh. An interesting little tidbit. Somebody who is, who is considered to be the grandfather or the godfather, depending what, what culture you're from, of biblical archaeology, William Foxwell Albright, who came to Eretz Israel in the 20s to dig, came with an understanding that the biblical story was not historically accurate. And everything he found proved him wrong. Now, that takes great scholarship to be able to look at information and say, what I thought till now was wrong. But over time, he came around to the belief 
that more or less the story that we're told in Tanakh is accurate historically. So when we think about archaeology, biblical archaeology and biblical archaeologists, and we almost immediately have a negative kind of feel, a negative reaction, it's understandable, but it's certainly not a necessary one and not the inevitable one. So I'd like to start, if you look at the first page, with a story that has nothing to do with archaeology, but has everything to do with knowledge. Because remember, we got our knowledge from three sources. We're not going to be talking about the third source at all, which is logical derivation, because when it comes to material information, tangible things, there's no derivation to make. It is what it is. And then whatever background we can discern chemically and through metallurgy, etc., that's what we'll get to. It's source one. It's a story. And I'll tell you the story. Someone recalling studying with Rav Hai Gaon, Rav Hai Gaon, or Chaim Gaon, Chaim Gaon, who was the last of the great leaders in Babylonia, died in 1038. That goes back a ways. Even I wasn't alive then. Tell my students that. Rav Hai Gaon was sitting in the yeshiva in Baghdad. The yeshivot had been moved to Baghdad. And they were studying the book of Tehillim, which, by the way, is also instructive that Tanakh was not always shunted aside in the curriculum. They were studying Tehillim. And they came to the Pasuk in Tehillim Kuf Mem Aleph, Shemen Al Yani Roshi. And the students all asked, what does the word Yani mean? And Rav Haigon said, I don't know either. And he instructed one of his students to go down the street to the archbishop of the Syriac church and ask him, how do they understand the Pasuk? They have a Tanakh. How do they translate it? The student was scandalized. Are you kidding? You want me to go to the archbishop of the Syriac church and ask how they learn the Pasuk? And Rav Haigon was equally scandalized. He said, of course, we get information, data from wherever we get it. We do not ask secular or religious leaders of other religions for advice on how to live, for theology, for halacha, for hashkafa, but information we're going to get from where we get it. And if they have insight that can help us, we're not allowed to ignore it. We don't accept anything at face value with blind faith, but if they have information, let's use it and see if we can understand the pasuk any better. And that's a spirit that did exist in Babylonia, existed more in Spain and in the world of Sfarad than the world of Ashkenaz over the next few hundred years. But it's a spirit that continued to exist in the world of rabbinic scholarship. And many great gedolim in every century consulted whatever information they were able to get access to through whatever sources to get the facts. To quote Jack Webb, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. What we do with it, that's an internal discussion. How we understand it's an internal discussion. Okay, so let's go to our first test case. If I were to ask the average person on the street, who sold Yosef? What would the answer be? The brothers. We all know it because, of course, the famous martyrology that we read on Yom HaKippurim, Ela Ezkara, which also is represented in the keynote on Tishavav, Arzeh Halvanon, which, by the way, is a midrash that has approximately 12 to 15 versions, 
all of them revolve around the idea that not only the brothers, but ten of the brothers, meaning everybody but Binyamin, were actively involved and guilty for the sale of their brother, which of course leads to ten Chachamim being killed in some sort of strange transgenerational consequence. And we all know that the brothers did it because we read about it in Tanakh. So here's where things get really interesting. Everybody understood from the 2nd century until about the 11th century, or everybody assumed, that the brothers had sold Yosef. And that it is the guilt for that action that led to the terrifying Shibud Mitzrayim that we just started reading about yesterday, the slavery in Egypt. And that led, of course, to the greatest story that we have, which is the Exodus, next stop Har Sinai, next stop Eretz Yisrael. And Rashi, who really was a trailblazer in his developing a comprehensive commentary on Chumash, on Tanakh, took that position as well. Rashi had, as you know, perhaps you do know, no sons. He had anywhere between two and four daughters. We don't know. We know of two, Yochavet and Miriam, rumors of a third, vague rumors about a fourth. We don't know. But his two daughters that we know of married his students. Yochavet married a fellow named Meir, and they had some very famous sons. The oldest one was somebody named Shmuel. Shmuel ben Meir, known to us as Rashbam. He also had a younger brother named Yaakov, Yaakov ben Meir, who was more popularly known as Yaakov Ishtam or Rabbeinu Tam. The Rashbam also wrote a commentary on the Chumash. It was not nearly as well known or popularized as Rashi's. Just to give you an example, we have extant with us I believe over 200 manuscripts of Rashi's commentary on Chumash. That's how popular it was. That's how many people were asking and paying a lot of money for copyists to make copies for them. We have one of the Rashbam. But the Rashbam's commentary was highly regarded in his day and in the generations afterwards by the Jews in France and in Germany and in the world of Ashkenaz and even in the world of Sfarad. The Rashbam does something strange. Most commentators who write a programmatic introduction, meaning an introduction of what they're going to do in their commentary, where would they put that introduction? Where would you look for it? Beginning of Breshit. The Ramban's famous introduction to his commentary, it's two introductions, beginning of Breshit. The Ibn Ezra's two introductions, beginning of Breshit. This one was everybody who writes one at the beginning of Breshit. Rashi didn't write one. The Rashbam has a brief introduction at the beginning of Breshit, and there's a whole story behind that, how we have access to it. But the Rashbam also wrote another introduction in the middle of Breshit, which is pretty weird. And you can see it here in Source 2. This is the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev, when we hear the story of Yaakov and his sons and Yosef and the dreams and the pit, etc. And you can see it on page 1, Source 2, and I translated it for you. I'll read it in Hebrew, you can follow it in English. And this is very surprising when you're reading a commentary. Normally, by the time you get past the introductions, you expect the commentary to be on that verse. Instead, 
Mashalim dunu rabotenu ki ein mikra yotzei midei pshuto. And this, by the way, becomes the defining phrase of the Rashbam throughout his commentary. A text always means what it means. It may mean more than what it means, but it can never not mean the simple meaning. It can't unmean that. In other words, the Rashbam concedes that most of what we do and most of what we know and most of what we believe comes through Midrash, meaning interpretation of Sukim. Nonetheless, he says, So therefore, those who came before me, Rishonim is a relative term. So for the Rashbam, the Rishonim means Rashi and the Gonim. They focused their energies on the Midrashim. And as a result of that, he says, A person is a person, no matter how brilliant. They have a focus. And if your focus is interpretive, exegetical, it becomes very hard to also focus on simple reading and understanding the grammar and the context and the material world around you. And he quotes the statement in the Gemara of a great Chacham in the Gemara who says, I was 18 years old, I had studied all of Shas, and I still didn't know that rule, because that was not the focal point. And then he says the following startling statement. <clears throat> he says, You know who Rabbeinu Shlomo is to everybody in Europe in the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, etc. century? Rashi. Rabbeinu Shlomo. Avi imi meir my maternal grandfather, shepiresh Torah nevimuktuvim, atam lev lefaresh pshutos mikra. Rashi focused on pshutos mikra. Va'afani Shmuel Reb Meir Chot Nozatzal. I, the Rashbam, his grandson, nitvakachti imo. I argued with him. This is the Rashbam admitting that he argued with his grandfather. He agreed, he consented, that if he had time, he would write another commentary based on newly discovered pshat. Because we discover pshat anew, which is part of what we're going to talk about. And now he says, And now pay attention to the perush. And you've got to sit there and say, what are you doing this in chapter 37 of Breshit, writing this introduction? It's very bizarre. The answer is because the Rashbam is about to drop a bombshell. Okay? If you take a look <coughs> in, you don't have it with you, but if you take a look in the Psukim, let's walk through the story. You all know the story. Yosef is supposed to find his brothers. Yosef comes to Shechem. His brothers aren't in Shechem. He meets a guy, and the guy says they went to Dotan. Right? They go to Do- he goes to Dotan to find them, and when they see him from a distance, they say, "Ooh, here comes the dreamer. Let's take off his coat, throw him in the cistern. He'll die, and uh, let's see what happens to his dreams." Now, 
Follow the story carefully because you'll see what's actually there physically. Ruvain speaks up and says, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in that cistern and not kill him. And Ruvain's plan is, of course, to come back and bring him out when the brothers aren't looking. That's right there in the text. I understand. What's the difference between one cistern and the other? What? Say that. What? Okay, good. So we're staying away from the Midrash, just looking in the text, right? The text says, Haborek Ein Bomayim. Now, why, if they throw in one, one cistern, will he die of drowning, and the other one not? So the answer, actually interesting, is that we need material information about watering practices in ancient Canaan to understand this. And we have them. Where would you build a cistern? A cistern is a hole in the ground meant to collect water. Where would you build it? At the foot of a mountain. Rain water comes down and you collect it. I went eight and a half years ago, eight years and a few months ago, to Anikdotan, to the spot where Yosef was sold. And I looked around and I noticed that in many of the spots at the foot of the hill, which goes to Tel Dotan, there are cisterns, and they all are in pairs. There's two of them, which may be what dotan means, because a dut is a, a pit, and the name of the place may be dotaim, as in two pits, two cisterns. And the being there is critical for understanding this rush bomb. And what happens is you collect rainwater, and assume that, let's say, around March or April, all the cisterns are full. And then what happens? Shepherds come along and take water. And evidently, the system was you first start by taking from one cistern, and then you've got an empty one, and the other one's still full. So what was the brother's original thought? Throw him into the full one. He'll die. What does Reuven say? Ah, throw him in that one. He'll die of exposure. In the meantime, Reuven will have time to come and save him. Okay. Throws him, they throw, they agree, and they throw him in the pit, in the cistern that's empty. Now, the brothers then go and, and sit down to eat. Where do they go sit down to eat? We actually find out from being on the spot. If I had a screen, I would have shown you pictures from when I was there. The brothers, while they're eating, look up and see what? They see a caravan of Yishmaelim, Bedouins, traveling the spice route. We know the spice route. We're familiar with the spice route. The spice route goes along the Euphrates, down Gilad, across the Jordan, and through Derech Shemesh, which is right near Tel Dotan, and they go to the coast, and they take the coast down to Egypt. You can't go through the desert. You'll die. We know the road. And we know the road because, again, of archaeology. And the brothers are going, the, the, the caravan is going through that spot. I was in Tel Dotan, standing next to the cistern. I couldn't see the road. I climbed up the hill and I could see the road, which tells us where the brothers sitting when they see the, the caravan. They're sitting up the hill, which means they're not near the, the cistern. Yehuda says, let's sell Yosef. We won't make any money. Let's, why, let's not have him die and let's make some money off him. We'll sell him. What does the next pasuk say? Vayavru anashim midyanim. 
Midyanim come and pull Yosef out of the cistern and sell him to the Ishmaelim. And who's the first person to get to the cistern? Reuven, because he's supposed to save Yosef. He gets there, what does he see? Yosef's not there. He tears his clothes and he comes to his brothers and says, Yosef's not here. Which means if you read the text straight, just the text, the clear implication is that the brothers wanted to sell Yosef, but that they didn't get there in time. And that the, the, he was sold by the Midianim to the Ishmaelim, and by the time the brothers got there, he was gone. You then turn ahead and say, so what is Yosef, when he reveals himself to his brothers, say, I'm Yosef, who you sold to Egypt? So Rashbam gives his explanation. I think it's a simpler explanation. Yosef doesn't know what happened. As far as he's concerned, the brothers took money from the Midianim, but they didn't want to look at him. Whatever reason. Now, the Rashbam is aware that he's dropping a bombshell when he says this, because we all agreed 10 minutes ago the brothers sold him. And it, so much Midrashic material is built on that. So much of transgenerational guilt is built on the idea that the brothers sold him, and the Rashbam realizes he's dropping a bombshell, and so he gives this long introduction at the beginning of Pasha Vayeshev to kind of clue you in. I'm about to say something revolutionary. Now, if you look into the text, or you go to Tel Dotan and sit there, you can see the Rashbam was right. The Rashbam, by the way, had a very poor grasp of geography, for good reason. There weren't really any good maps, and the Torah is quite vague in the way it describes directions. But the Rashbam intuited this from the Pasuk. Reality on the ground has demonstrated that he's right. But I'll tell you something else, is the Rashbam was motivated by something else going on. And it's important to keep this in mind also. The Rashbam lived in 12th century France. The Rashbam, by the way, had interactions with Christian theologians, and they even consulted him from time to time and mentioned him by name, Samuel, as somebody who helped them understand the text of the Torah. He had interactions. But frequent interactions that took place in France in the 12th century between Jews and Christians were polemic. The Christians had suddenly taken a real interest in understanding what the actual text of the Torah said, and then tried to use it as a battering ram to prove that their religion was correct. I'll give you a, an example. One Sunday, sometime in the middle of the 12th century in France, a preacher got up on Sunday morning in church and told his flock, who many of them had regular interactions, business interactions, and even social interactions with Jews, and said to them, by the way, the next time you see your Jewish friend, you can show them that their Torah broadcasts our religion. Ask them what the first three letters in the Torah are. And they'll tell you, Bet, Resh, Aleph, which stands, of course, for Ben, Ruach, Av, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. So, oh, there's a good end to the story. So, on Monday... These guys go, and they bump into their Jewish friends, and they say, oh, and the Jews are really upset. So some Jew goes to Rabbeinu Tam and says, Rebbe, how are we going to answer that? And Rabbeinu Tam, without missing a beat, says, what are the next three letters? Shin Yod Tav. Sheker Yeshu V'Torato. Now, important to note, Rabbeinu Tam certainly didn't believe either one of them as being valid. But he says, you want to play that game? I can play the game too. Uh, it's easy. But that was the kind of stuff that was going on. I'm telling you that because one of the common practices that existed in Catholic France of the 12th century was to put on street shows 
playing out biblical scenes. And one of the scenes the Christians loved to present was the sale of Yosef. Because what does it prove? Jews will sell another Jew for 20 pieces of silver. Thus, Judas Iscariot, if you know the story. The Rashbam, very simply, in one shot says, you guys don't even know how to read the Bible. They didn't sell him. So you understand, he's motivated by a polemic issue. He's motivated by a response to Christianity. However, he happens to be accurate within the text of the Torah as well, which is why he says it. But this is an example of how we get information from the material world and from things that we discover. I want to go to another example, which is much more directed towards what we're, the focus of the, the, the title, which is about archaeology. As we all know, there is a prohibition in the Torah that's mentioned three times, which is against cooking milk and meat together. Right? Basar b'chalav. And as we're all familiar, it says it three times, and the three times are understood among the many different interpretations. Three times, an isur of bishul, a prohibition to cook, prohibition to eat, prohibition to get any benefit. Okay. But why is there such a prohibition? Very strange. So if you take a look at source four on top page two, you'll see that the Torah says, Reshit tavi adonai the first instance where it says do not cook and a cow, a, a kid in its mother's milk is prefaced with the mitzvah of bringing Bikurim to the Beit HaMikdash. Watch what the Sforno says on the spot. He says, and Sforno lives around 1470 to 1550 in Livorno, Italy. Don't practice these fertility practices. Like the pagans do. Rather, bring your Bikurim. And the Bikurim, bringing Bikurim is going to increase your crop. It is properly acknowledging God as the source of all your brachot is what's going to increase your, your fertility. What is this Forno's comment here, therefore, on the prohibition of milk and meat? He's taking a stab and saying, cooking milk and meat together sounds like it was some pagan practice. Now, it's important to note that pagan religion, and again, we have to understand that to understand the Torah. Pagan religion is suffused with something that we call theurgy, which means you do a certain action and it generates a divine response. I don't mean you pray to Hashem and ask Him for something. You do a particular symbolic action and it creates a response and hopefully a favorable one. And so there's all sorts of pagan practices that we're familiar with that were designed to create fertility. It means my animals should be fertile, my, my wife should be fertile, my kids should be fertile, the crops should be everything fertility. Fertility is the big bracha. And so the Sforno says that was evidently a practice that the pagans had, which was to cook a kid in its mother's milk as a fertility practice. And therefore the two are put together. In other words, the Torah is saying you want to have a blessing of fertility, bring Bikurim to the Beit HaMikdash instead of doing this basar b'chalav thing. Where is he getting it from? The answer is he's getting it from the Rambam. The Rambam, in, as you see here is a list, everybody who's anybody weighed in on what this prohibition is. Is it about sens sensitivity? Right? Is it, uh, the Chizkuni has a real interesting insight, which is, don't let a kid grow up with his mother's milk. In other words, 
bring him as a korban immediately, don't let him nurse the whole time. But the Rambam and others suggest that the language of it, the placement in the text, and the strangeness of the prohibition and the wording of the prohibition, it doesn't say don't cook milk or meat. It says do not see the kid in its mother's milk, seem to indicate some sort of pagan practice. The Rambam said it as a suggestion. Your Bravanel picked it up around the same time the Sforno picked it up, and uh, there were little loose threads of commentary through the generations that picked it up, but it didn't get a lot of traction. When biblical scholarship got kicking, people, sorry to say, laughed at the Rambam. In 1929, there was a, a dig at a, a very important site in northern Syria called Ugarit. And Ugarit, which is near the Syrian coast, north of Lebanon on the coast, was a major cultic center during the times of the Torah. And the things we found there have been quite revealing about things that we have in our own, in our own law. And in it, the French expedition that found a tablet there found a tablet that actually had writing on both sides. One of the sides was a praise for the goddess Elah, and the other side was sort of like a prescription for a ceremony. And in it, it had the following words. Tavach gad b'chalav, angach b'chamat, which means cook the kid in milk and the, and the uh, lamb in cream. Chaman Tanakh is cream. We use it for butter. And suddenly, the Rambam was justified. So, suddenly, the Rambam was supported. Suddenly, we found an actual tablet describing a ceremony of pagan religion that included taking a kid and cooking in its mother's milk. Wow! Now, full disclosure. How do you read a tablet? What, 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 what tab, when we talk about tablets, what do they look like? What are they? What? Yeah, and what's the material? So the material in Israel is going to be stone. These are typically clay tablets. Right? And how do they write on them? So before the clay hardens, they take sticks. This is cuneiform writing. Take sticks, right? And then they bake them. But the result of that is that many of the letters are hard to decipher. It depends on how things play out. So there's a fellow near us, Bruce Zuckerman at USC, who has a, evidently the best spectrogram in, in the country. And they brought this tablet to him 60 years later, took a look at it and said, nah, it doesn't say that. <laughs> now, I'm not concerned with what, I mean, it'd be really fun if it said that. But I'm not concerned whether it said that. What I am trying to demonstrate to you is that sometimes by digging underground, we can find things that will illuminate our understanding of the Torah. At no point is anybody suggesting, or should they suggest, that based on what we found, you're now allowed to have chicken with cheese, or based on what we found, you can now have milk with meat as long as you, you know, say a bracha, nothing else. We're not talking about practice. We're not talking about theology. We're talking about information. And when it comes to information, the question which is how deep can we dig, we can dig as deep as we can get. And the more information we get and the more illuminated our understanding is, the better that we have a grasp on the Torah. I want to take you to a third example, and then the final example, which is, for me, the most fun. <clears throat> Where is Yosef buried? So Yosef buried in Shechem, but kind of. Has any, have any of you been to Shechem, the city of Shechem? You've been there. Okay, good. In Shechem, with the army or before? Okay, so I've been before. 
Have you ever been to Har Grizim? Anybody here been to Har Grizim? If you haven't, next time in Israel, get in touch with me. I'll set you up. Go to Har Grizim. It's an amazing thing. Samaritans. Right? You go to the Samaritans. I've been there lots of times. been there for the Korban Pesach. I've been in their Sukkot, in their houses. Great, amazing group. Very, very hospitable. And you go to the edge of Har Grizim, where you can see Harival across, and you look down, you can see Kever Yosef, the spot that we revere as Kever Yosef, and it's an accurate identification. You know, many of the Kfarot that we have in Israel are like, eh, maybe, maybe not, right? It's a famous story that, uh, that there was a tour guide who took the group up to Nebi Samuel, which overlooks Yerushalayim, which is supposedly the place where Shmuel is buried. And the fellow gives a talk, Kan Kavur Shmuel, here I'll do it in English, Shmuel is buried, who anointed two kings, etc. Actually, there was a kid who was listening. The next day, they went to Kever Shmuel in Yerushalayim, and he gave the same speech. And the kid said, wait a second, yesterday we were up on a mountain, and you said Shmuel's buried there, and now we're here, and you said Shmuel's buried here, and he said, that's easy, Shmuel, all of Shmuel bet. <laughs> but the reality is, there's a lot of kvarot that are really questionable. But Kevin Yosef were really, really accurate. Why is that? Because where is Yosef buried? Yosef's buried in the field that his father had bought. Please take a look at um, source 8. Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. Right? Asher Be'eretz Kenan, Bevo'o Mipadan Aram, Vayichan Apnei Ha'ir, Vayikan Et Chalkat HaSadeh, Asher Nata. Asher Nata Shamo'alo, Miyar Ben Chamor, Vishchem, Bemeak Sita. All right, so now, Yaakov comes Shalem. I'm not going to translate that to the city of Shechem, which is in Canaan when he comes from Badan Aram, from Syria, and he camps facing the east side of the city. And he purchases a field that he set up his tent from the sons of Hamor, who was the father of Shechem, meaning the lords of the city. Where did Yaakov settle based on this? It sounds like he settled in Shechem. And it sounds like he came there, Shalem. What does Shalem mean? All in good shape. Take a look at the Midrash in Source 9. Shalem begufo, Shalem bevanav, Shalem bemamono. Everything was fine. In spite of the fact that he had run away from Esav and now he'd run away from Lavan, he was still 100% complete. Great. The Rashbam, our buddy here, the Rashbam challenges, Rashi quotes this, challenges this and says, that's not how Hebrew works in Tanakh. And he interprets as follows. Vayavo Yaakov Shalem means El Ir Shishma Shalem. Yaakov comes to Shalem. Now look at the Pasuk again. Yaakov comes to Shalem, which is a city owned by whom? Shechem is not a city yet. It's a person. It's, it's a place owned by Shechem. And he purchases this field. So suddenly we find Yaakov's not in Shechem, he's in Shalem, which is near where Shechem lives. Okay, now, you go back up with me to the top of Har Grizim, and take a look off to the right, meaning to the east. And you can see a map here. And you will see a village that's been there forever called Salam. That is Shalem. In other words, we now have material evidence of the Rashbam's interpretation, and suddenly you see that on the east side of ancient Shechem, facing towards Salam, is where Kever Yosef is, exactly as the Pasuk says. I want to go now to what I think is the most fun example of this phenomenon. 
we have <clears throat> a challenge whenever we're studying Tanakh, which is we're studying Tanakh in a language which we're both familiar with and not familiar with. Many of us are fluent in Hebrew. Many of us read Hebrew fluently. And yet, the Hebrew of Tanakh is not the Hebrew of today, or the Hebrew of the Rambam, or the Hebrew of the Mishnah. It's biblical Hebrew. And often when we run into a word or phrase that we're not familiar with, our best access is through a book that has existed forever called a concordance. Rashi had a concordance. It was right up here. A concordance means, it's a text, that has an index of where any word that you have, every place it shows up in Tanakh. So if you come up to a word in Breshit and you don't know what it means, you check the concordance and you find that maybe it shows up in Vayikra. Look it up there and maybe Rashi helps you out. Look, maybe context will help you out. Maybe it shows up in Shmuel and you'll figure it out from context. That's a concordance. Again, all the Rishonim walked around with concordances in their head. By the 19th century, maybe earlier, concordances were being published, printed as books. I have a couple in my classroom that have been there for 20 years because we don't use them anymore because now we just go online. <laughs> and the online concordances are actually, in a sense, smarter, depending who designs them, of the way that they're able to find words. But the value of a concordance is if I have a word and I don't know what it means, I can look elsewhere and figure it out from there. What happens if it doesn't show up anywhere else? So we have a phenomenon in Tanakh, which we refer to by the Latin phrase, hepax legomenon, which means a word that shows up only once. And as a result of that, if you can't figure it out from context, you've got to raise your hand and say, I don't know what it means. One of the most famous of these is the word pim. Take a look at the top, page 3. In the context of the story in Shmuel, Aleph, of the battle against the Plishtim, when the Plishtim controlled the land, and as a result of that, they did not allow us to have any Hebrew, Jewish, forges, because they were afraid we would forge weapons. And as a result of that, if any Jewish farmer wanted to sharpen his tools, he had to go to a Plishti forge and pay him, and have him, have him uh, sharpen it. And this seems like an almost incidental men, uh, mention, because, like, who cares about farmers when reading the story now? But watch what happens. Vaitap tzirafim, in describing it, tzira means sharpening, or wet, wetting, a whetstone. All of those things, a machresha is a kind of a plow, an eight is a hoe, a shalosh kilshon is evidently a three-pronged plow of sorts. A kardom is a two-sided tool, which is an axe on one side and a shovel on the other. Well, that's siva darvan, and that is a cattle prod. Okay. So now, I take a look and I see the word pim, and I don't know what a pim is because it doesn't show up anywhere else in Tanakh. So if I am Rashi, or Mahari Kara, or Radak, or anybody else commenting in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, etc., I come to a conclusion that based on context, it must be a farm tool. Take a look here at what Rashi says. It's a sense some sort of a tool that has sharp edges, kind of serrated, round edges. Maybe like we did think a circular saw or something like that, a tool. Where does he get it from? He gets it from the context that all of those things are tools, and pim sounds like pet. A mouth. All right. Brilliant suggestion. Until 1906. 
Remember, I told you that we have, in starting in the 19th century, the Iraq Expedition Force and then the Palestine Expedition Force, the PEF, which is digging underground to try to find information about Tanakh. And in the, in the dig at Ascalon, which is near Ashkelon, they find not one, but a whole bunch of little stones that have that marking on it. You see the marking on the stone? Okay, so that marking, and you take a look and see, that is written in the writing of Ivrit that David HaMelech used, the, the script that was used by Chizkiyahu, the script that was used by Shlomo. Everything from the first temple period is written in this script. It's called Paleo-Hebrew. Only in the 5th century did we start shifting over to what we, we're familiar with as Hebrew, which is called Ketav Ashuri, or Aramaic script. And even in the 1st century, Jews are still writing certain things in the ancient script. In other words, we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is another talk. From the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have texts that have parts of Tanakh in reg what we would recognize as regular Hebrew, except every time it comes to Hashem's name, it uses this text, because Hashem's name, that's holy, that's special. And so you could, you, could, um, you could take a look at these three letters and you'll see that they are a pei, a yod, and a mem. And of course, anybody who was digging immediately recognized it and said, Oh, this is a pim. Wow. Now let's look at the pasuk. Meaning, this is a stone. What was the stone used for? Well, they started checking and they found that all of these stones weighed about seven and a half grams, which means they're of an equal weight, which means what was the word pim? It was the name of a weight. Why do I care about weights? Because how do you pay for anything in the ancient world? You bring precious metals and you put it on a scale and you put a weight and you say, okay, I owe you six grams of silver, one gram of gold, whatever it might be, and you weigh it, which means a pim was a price of silver. Which means, by the way, the police team were gouging us, but that's a separate problem. So now you look back at the Pasuk and you say, Aha, Vahitap Tsirafim, meaning if you wanted to come and do sharpening, the price that they would charge was a pim's worth of silver. Suddenly the Pasuk makes a lot of sense. And we know what a pim is. But the interesting problem that we have with that is that pim is misspelled. Um, let me ask you this question. How do you spell the word shalom? Shin Lamed, five men. Very good. If Moshe Rabbeinu sees that, you know what he's going to ask you? Why did you write Shalavam? Because if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, how are you going to write Shalom? Shin Lamed Mem. Hebrew has 22 consonants. There are no vowels in Hebrew. Vowels are all Tarsh Valpet. However, over time, we start using what we call matris lectionis, or amot mikra, such as a vav and a yod, and in some cases an olive, in some cases a hay, to create a vowel, to make it easier to read. And over time, that becomes more prevalent. But in this period, which is, we date to the 10th century BCE, this stone, or 9th, they're still using what we call ktiv chaser, meaning only consonants. Which means you have a pei, a yod, and a mem, how do you actually read it? It's not pim anymore. What is it? It's payim. What is that ending? You're familiar with it. It's, it's, the, it's the doubled, right? Like yadayim, enayim, oznayim, payim. Which means this is 2p. 2p. Interesting. So what's a p? 
So the word P actually shows up in Chumash. Please take a look at source 12. The interesting case where a man has two wives. I'm going to give them names. Let's call one of them Rocky and the one that Lulu. All right. And, uh, and he likes Rocky more than Lulu. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And uh, they each have sons. Lulu has a son named Robbie. And uh, Rocky has a son named Joe. See if you get the story I'm talking about. And because, and, and Lulu's son, uh, Robbie, is born first. It would be the husband's natural tendency to give Joe the favor of being the Bechor because his mom is the one I like more. Rocky. But the Torah says, no, he must recognize the actual firstborn son, even though it is born of the wife he likes less. Yes, this is a critique on Yaakov. And, um, and give him Pishnayim. Pishnayim, that's the phrase used. What does Pishnayim mean? So in modern Hebrew, Pishnayim means twice as much, and therefore Pishalosh means three times as much. Etc. And we'll use it for Pimea. But in Tanakh, it's never used except Pishnayim. It's always used Pishnayim. Now, by the way, how many kids are there in this then that halachic story? It's two kids. And if one of them is going to get a double portion, how many portions are there? Three. So what's Pishnayim? Two thirds. Which means a P means a third. Now go back to our coin, and what do you see? If it's payim, that means it's two-thirds. Look at the table underneath, and you can see that a... We found hundreds of PIM coins, by the way. First time I ever gave this talk, a fellow said, you want to come to my house? I'll show you my collection of PIM coins. <coughs> so you're not supposed to take them. But how much does the average PIM coin weigh? Two-thirds of a shekel. So some of you understand what this is, payim. And an interesting proof to it is the pasuk in Zechariah, a very strange pasuk, which talks about some apocalyptic plague. Pishnaim will die and a third will remain. You understand what Pishnaim is again? Two thirds. Right? And so, suddenly, by discovering this stone in Ashkelon, not only does the pasuk in Shmuel take on new meaning, but all sorts of psukim elsewhere in the Torah and in Tanakh, including perhaps Elisha's request of Eliyahu, when Eliyahu is about to die, or to go to Shamayim, which is, which may mean, I want to be recognized as your elder student and get the double portion. In any case, suddenly this little find illuminates all sorts of areas of Torah. And again, to, to restress. At no point are we using any of this information to tell us how we should live, what we should believe, how we should conduct ourselves. But information that helps illuminate a text is something that not only we are allowed to and encouraged to, we are obligated to engage with because the more that we can understand Torah, the more we can understand Tanakh, the more can we can understand Mishnayot and Gemara. By studying the material world of Bavel in the 4th century, as an example, we're obligated to increase our understanding. There is nothing under the ground that threatens what we believe, what we know, or how we live our lives. What threatens it only is two opposite reactions. One 
is somebody who finds something and draws, real, draws <coughs> normative conclusions, attitudinal conclusions from that. What is a and meaning law. Meaning saying as a result of this, from now on, things change. That's one clearly invalid approach. And it also scientifically, it's, it doesn't mean anything. And the other is to ignore it and say, I can't learn anything from there. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us a wide world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us knowledge. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave knowledge to lots of people outside. And if we don't use every bit of that knowledge to illuminate the Torah and increase our understanding, then we are wasting a, a valuable opportunity. What we've looked at over the course of the past hour, is I started out with a source, the story of the sage who was in Rav Haigon's Beit Midrash and was scandalized by his Rebbe telling him to go to the Archbishop of the Syriac Church and find out how they understand a word in Tanakh. And Rav Haigon was equally scandalized. Why wouldn't you go? We're trying to get information. And everything that we've done has been to re-examine assumptions about a text, about a story, about the meaning of a word, about a location, and using the best information that we have today to say, at this point, our best estimation is this. Nobody who is serious about this will ever say, I now know for sure. Because guess what? We might find something underground next week that's going to give us even more insight. And it's critical for all of us who are studying, who are learning, to always keep open, as Chazal did, to always keep open that window of possibility of I can learn something new and I can reevaluate it because that keeps our learning fresh and not stale. And we will all continue to learn together from lectures, from Chavrusa, from self-learning, and continue to reevaluate what we see within, of course, the bounds of halacha and the bounds of proper hashkafa, and intensify and deepen our appreciation for all of the wondrous literature that we have been blessed to engage in. Thank you.